All right, well, welcome to The Hammer Factor, where we help successful athletes and professionals share their genius with the world. In this episode, we have a true running genius, current FKT holder for the Ice Age Trail, and North Face athlete. Welcome to the show, Corey Waltering. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for making the time. And man, I can't wait to hear about this trail. I had never, e- I, I've never heard of the Ice Age Trail. So, yeah, most people haven't. So, <laughs> well, before we get into that, what is something most people probably don't know about you? Yeah, that is a really tough question because I feel like everything you need to know is already online. Um, <laughs> but um, I was actually a state champion in the science fair in engineering. But I do not like math, so I studied biology in college. What did you do to win the championship? Um, Building bridges. So my big thing was seeing how the length of a bridge uh, would affect, like, how much weight it could hold. And if, you know, you needed to have a different different type of bridge for the length of what it would be. Mm, Very cool. Congratulations on that. Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty fun. I I really enjoyed the bridge building part, but not so much the math of it. <laughs> Where are you from? Um, Ottawa, Illinois, a small town about eighty miles west of Chicago. Okay, and what were you like? Is that where you grew up? Yeah, that's where I grew up, born and raised, and then moved to Colorado for a little bit. And now I'm back in my hometown. So, what were you like as a little kid before you were a North Face athlete? Before you were, you know doing ultra runs and stuff what what were you like um i would say that i was probably a stubborn and extremely hyper kid um and i think my parents would absolutely agree with that um i just always had a ton of energy and so like even before organized sports like my mom would have me outside like running around the block or like trying to skip on one leg around the block and just like all these things just to like tire me out. And she just couldn't do it. And like that became a problem when I got into like preschool and kindergarten when it's nap time because I would never take a nap. Like I just hated it. And so, um, yeah, that was I think I was probably a difficult kid. <laughs> well, you just had some energy. Let's just kind of yeah. talk it up as that. Um, so what's the Ice Age Trail? The Ice Age Trail is a 1,147-mile trail that basically covers the state of Wisconsin. So it starts in western Wisconsin in St. Croix Falls. So that's actually like an hour basically north of Minneapolis, um, right on the Wisconsin-Minnesota border, and then heads east northeast for about 350 miles so you're basically heading across the state towards like green bay and then so you finally get to a section called kettle bowl and from there like if you drive straight across you're only maybe like 80 miles from green bay but instead you have to then make a turn south and then back west for a little bit And then you basically head straight south down to Madison and then down to Janesville. So at that point, you know, you're only like 20 miles away from the Wisconsin-Illinois border. And then they're like, oh, but you're not going to Illinois. So now you make a turn north and you head over to Milwaukee and then straight up to Green Bay and then up into Sturgeon Bay, which is uh, Door County. 
So is this uh, gravel roads? Is it single track? What's what's the trail? Like, just how would you describe it? Uh, a little bit of everything. So it's about, I'd say, five, probably half and half, half road, half um, trail. And so the trail sections have everything from super muddy and rocky, rooty, technical, um, just slow moving trail to like buttery smooth single track and like pine needles and just like stuff you can really run on. There's some rail to trail and then there's a lot of just like backcountry roads. Rail to trail, what do you mean? Just like you're on the tracks? Uh, like crushed limestone. So, I mean, it used to be, it actually used to be a railroad bed, but now they took the tracks out and now it's just crushed limestone. So why this trail? What did you, what motivated you to attempt the fastest known time on this trail? Yeah. Um, so my husband is a professional skydiver in Wisconsin at Skydive Milwaukee, uh, which is in East Troy. And East Troy is about 15 minutes from the Ice Age Trail. So when I moved back to Illinois in 2015, and yeah, end of 2015, um, I was just looking for trails because it's like I had been in Colorado for so long. Well, not so long. It was only a couple of years. Um, but anyway, it's like, well, he's up there every weekend jumping. And so because of that is like, oh, well, there's this Ice Age Trail that's pretty close. So, okay, I guess I'll go run it. Um, and so for that, it was the Southern Kettle Moraine unit that I was kind of training on, which most people might know that from either Ice Age 50 or Kettle Moraine 100. Um, and so like, I've just been training on those trails for so long. And then I was like, well, you know, there's, there's actually like a whole trail system. So I kind of want to see more of it. So then I started going up to Devil's Lake and doing the trails around there. And then it was like, okay, now I've seen quite a bit of this trail, but I just, I want to see all of it. So I'm like, let's go for it. Hmm. <laughs> what was the time before you did it? Uh, 21 days, 18 hours and 17 minutes or something. So, I mean, I only beat it by like five hours. Uh, so that was Annie Lease, which she set the overall FKT. Um, Jason, Jason did it back in 2007. Jason. And who? he, Jason Dorgan. Okay. And he had the male FKT at 22 days and eight hours. So give us the play-by-play. How did it go? Um, yeah. So day one, everything went well. Like day one was like one of those days where it's like, okay, like I think we can actually do this. Like things are going well. Um, but towards the end of the day, I had to cross this field. Just a lot of ticks that were just like crawling on us in this field. And it's like, okay, like, we can deal with this, but like it was freaking me out a little bit. Cause I mean, I've run on that trail year round and like, I've never had a tick on me anytime when I've been up there. And, like, honestly, I had never had a tick on me ever. And so like, which is surprising. Cause I mean, I've run thousands of miles on trail and just had never had a tick. And I mean, I grew up in the Midwest and I mean, you just, you get them. So, um, so that freaked me out a little bit and I was like, okay, we're towards the end of day one. It's going to be totally fine. But like, I did not sleep that first night because when I went to bed, I still felt like I had ticks crawling on me. So it's like, I couldn't sleep. And I'm like, this is, it was so freaky to me. But anyway, day two, we wake up and we're like, all right, we'll go to the trail. No big deal. 
I'm eight miles into day two, and there was a thunderstorm that came through, and I'm just soaked. And then I have to cross another field to get to, like, the next trailhead. And I come out of the woods, and I have, like, 40 ticks on me. And so at this point, I'm just like, fuck this. I'm done. <laughs> like, like I sat down in the chair, and I'm like, get these ticks off of me, and we are going home. And, like, I like I honestly was ready to be just done at 10 a.m. on day two. And so my crew is, like, trying to talk me out of it. They're like, no, it's going to be fine. Like, you'll be okay. The ticks aren't going to be this bad the whole time. And I'm like, I don't care how bad the ticks are going to be for the rest of this because they're already bad enough that I am done. And so, like, I sat there for, like, honestly probably two hours and was just like, okay, like – maybe maybe i know someone that can do this so um i've been talking to jared on instagram who's just like a dude that's hiked the ice age trail i think he's finished it nine times now he's through hiked it nine times or section hike it and through hiked it so um anyway i was talking to him and he's like yeah there's a simple solution for the ticks he's like you can either just wear long pants, which isn't really going to be fun when it's 90 degrees outside, or you can wear taller socks and then take duct tape and put it sticky side out and wrap it like around your ankles. So that way when the ticks fall onto your shoes and then they start to crawl up your leg, they're going to get stuck on the duct tape. And he's like, they won't bother you after that. And I was like, I don't know what kind of witchcraft and sorcery this is, but I'll try it. <laughs> and I was like, here we go. So I did that and magically like I went into the next like eight mile stretch in the woods and I came out and I had like just ticks sticking to the duct tape, but none of them made it past my ankles. It so worked. after that, yeah, it worked. And so after that, I was like, great, here we go. Don't need to worry about ticks anymore. And so from like, I never even thought about the ticks after, you know, that next stretch as like, okay, like I trust the duct tape. Um, it's crazy i know but it worked so so yeah um that was a pretty simple solution for something that just about was you know a game ender basically um real quick have you ever been in the jungle yeah for eco challenge fiji yeah and i want to talk about that too that's on my list of things to talk about but I, I've been in the jungle a few times, and what you're describing with the ticks is an experience I've had. I call it jungle tweak, when there's mm -hmm. just so many bugs. You put your hand around a tree that's got ants all over it, like that kind of thing. Like, anyway, yeah. anyway, that's a good story. Continue. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, but anyway, so like day two, like it seemed like it wasn't going well, and so anyway, like I was just like, I'm really not feeling this, and I've just lost a bunch of time. And, um, but then it started to rain even harder that night, but we finally got to like a super flat trail section where I'm like, I'm still going to run some of this through the rain. Then we could a little bit early and so I only got in like 28 miles on day two when I was hoping to be more like 55 or 60. So, um, not necessarily a great day two, but then like days three and four were just so smooth just because like put the duct tape around the ankles and switch it out like every couple hours and no big deal. So that was great. And then on day five, I was having a really good day. Um, got in just about all the miles I wanted to until like the last little trail segment that was, it was like a 15 mile stretch um, without crew, um, which isn't too bad. But um, 
this final one mile stretch is just like this wide trail that was maybe mid shin deep mud with like water up to my knees as you're just like trying to get through it. And there are a bunch of downed trees across the trail and like there's no maintenance that had been done on it, which that's a completely different story. But like, because of this, like every step you took, you just didn't really know what you're stepping on. And so at some point in there, I just rolled my ankle in the last like mile of the fifth day. And so it didn't hurt too bad, or at least I didn't think it did. But then I woke up on day six with a swollen ankle and like very limited range of motion. And so it was like, all right, like, here we go. And so for day six through 10, I was only able to walk and I couldn't run anything. Um, And so instead of, you know, only being out there for about 12 hours a day, it ended up that I had to be out there more like 14, 16, 18 hours a day trying to just keep within like striking distance of where I needed to be. Um, And so the solution for the rolled ankle was trekking poles um, because I could at least take a little bit of pressure off of that ankle. Um, But by doing that, it started to cause some shin issues on my left side. And so then by like having to like juggle that started causing some shin issues on the right side. And so finally, um, we saw a sports chiropractor in, oh boy, what was that town? Um, somewhere up by Wausau, Dr. Steve Rupel. Um, and basically he went in and did some like deep tissue massage, did some, uh, some of the Graston technique, the scraping stuff, you know, and like all of that trying to work on my shins, working on my ankle. And I saw him one of the evenings and then one of the mornings before I started. And luckily he's just able to get enough range of motion back where it's like, okay, like I think I'll be good enough to go. Um, but then I'm like day, I think it was day 11. Um, I just woke up that morning and like the swelling was gone. Like swelling was gone, had range of motion back. Like it was just this crazy thing. Like, I don't know, like I, I still can't explain it other than, you know, getting some body work and sleeping in compression socks and yeah. Um, but that's, it's really odd, but it worked. So then I was able to start running again. And at that point, were you behind on what your plan schedule or were you, were you keeping up pretty well? Uh, I was maybe 40 miles behind at that point. Um, but then I put in a couple bigger days to get within, you know, eight to 10 miles again, and then actually pulled ahead for a little bit. And then fell behind on uh, maybe like day 15 or so. Um, just had a short day there and then um, battled back. And so, yeah. How were you doing it? Like, uh, did you have a van for support? Where did you sleep? How were you getting nutrition? What was your, yeah. uh, how did you How did you do it? Yeah, so we had a van for, some, we had a cargo van. Uh, Bill Walsh Auto actually uh, let us borrow a cargo van for this. And so it was awesome because... We had the van that had all the supplies in it, all the food, all that. Um, And we had enough space in it that you could actually put like two sleeping bags in it and like two people could sleep in the van if they needed to. Um, And then we had a another person, uh, Kevin, our photographer, was also following along in a car. And then we had a pacer with us as well. Um, And so because that we had multiple people that were able to help with this and, um, you know, at like I carried all my own supplies and everything that I needed for each stretch. Cause I mean, like some people, they'll let people carry stuff for them or whatever, but I'm like, I want to carry it all. Like, I just like to have it on me. Um, cause you know, just, I I feel way more comfortable with that. Um, but yeah, so I would just see, I would see the van every, 
uh, there are certain days, you know, where like the van could actually be driving alongside you. And then there are other days where you're going to have a 15 mile stretch that might take four or five hours to cover where you're not going to see your crew. Um, and so I think the longest I probably went was maybe, maybe five hours without seeing crew, but like, that's really not too bad. Um, or at least I don't think it's bad. Um, but yeah, so that was nice. And, um, yeah, just, it worked. (laughs) What was your goal mileage each day? Um, I had hoped to cover about 60 miles a day. Like originally I thought that I could be done in about 18 days. Um, maybe 17 and a half or 18 days. And like, I still think that is possible. Um, but like doing in June is not a great time to do it just because you have the ticks, you have the mosquitoes. It's also extremely wet. And so, um, and it's just super overgrown in certain sections. And so it's just so slow moving. So I think to do it in like 17 and a half or 18 days, you'd have to either start in probably April uh, like mid to late April and just realize that there could be some snow um, up north still or you're going to have to do it in October and hope that you don't run into snowstorms um, and so I think but I think that's the best way to do it and honestly October would probably be best just because you'd have all spring summer and fall of people like being out on the trails I mean there it'd be much easier to follow it in certain sections right um but yeah, so the final like three, the final four days of this trail, I had like, I had like 96 hours to cover like 270 miles or something like that. Um, and so it's like, it was still a lot to go. But with that, you're basically your final 150 ish miles are either pavement or rail trail. Um, and so because of that, like, it's like, okay, like I still have to push and like, I need to push hard. And so to get this done, um, I pulled two all nighters in the final four days, plus one night of like three and a half hours of sleep and one night of maybe five hours, like five hours going into like the final four days. Um, and so, yeah, so I just stayed up and I pushed and like my final push was basically 160 miles uh, with like 44 hours to still get the court, get the record. Um, and to cover those miles, I ran for 24 hours straight and covered like 105 miles in that. And then I took a 20 minute coffee nap, which is, you know, drink a cup of coffee, lay down in the van, sleep, eat breakfast, and then got up and ran the next 60 miles and beat the record by about five hours. <laughs> Epic. What is it about? Uh, exhaustion's one thing, but when you combine exhaustion with sleep deprivation, it's a whole new, how would you describe that to someone who's never uh, done anything like that? Um, your decision making goes from probably a lot of us making poor decisions from running ultras anyway to um, completely awful. Um, like, it's honestly one of those things where it's like you you know what you are doing, but like you maybe like don't even like realize what you're doing. It's like you know that you're running, but you don't realize like oh I've just run like seventy five miles or a hundred miles. Like you just it's I don't it's really hard to explain actually, like, especially, especially that late into something. Cause I mean, these are days, you know, like 18, 19, 20 and 21. And so like, 
it's just one of those I don't know like I was already tired going into it but at that point it's like well this is what I have to do though it's like you get into some sort of just very simple zombie mode you know it's like rather than being able to make a hundred decisions over the course of an hour you can only make three but but somehow your legs keep working and your brain keeps working I would love to see some sort of research study or something done on just what exactly is going on inside your body when you're that sleep deprived and exhausted I mean absolutely like that would that would definitely be interesting what was it like doing this during a pandemic and at the same time you know there are protests going on in every city I mean were you seeing any of that unrest on the trail? What was your perspective? Obviously, you're in your own world a lot of times, but you're going through these little towns, and and were were people receptive during a pandemic and all of this kind of stuff? What was the, I don't know, what was like the vibe, for lack of a better term? Yeah, um, so that was one of the things that we weren't really sure how or what was going to go down, um, just because, like, it did start, you know, an hour north of Minneapolis. And so, I mean, that's pretty close to where the George Floyd incident happened. And, um, and so for us, it's like, um, Kevin, our cameraman is also black. And so it's like, you have two black dudes and, uh, two white dudes, basically just like traveling through Northern Wisconsin, which is not necessarily the most diverse place, um, out there. And so like, we didn't really know what to expect and none of us really talked about it before it was happening. Uh, I mean, before the FKT, like it was just kind of one of those things where uh, my crew is like, we're going to keep you safe during this. And like, my job was just to cover the miles and get it done. Um, and so as we are going through a lot of these smaller towns, um, like I don't think anyone even like cared that we were black. Um, like it was not even like a, it wasn't an issue that we were there. It wasn't anything bad. And like in gas station, like we had to go to a quick trip basically every morning to get different supplies and stuff. Um, and it was just really funny. Cause like we had this big cargo van with a picture of me on it. And it's like a picture of me running in like a t-shirt and a speedo basically. <laughs> Cause I always race in a speedo. So I mean like you can, like you will not miss this van, but like, if you see me in a store, like you will also realize that's me. Like that's the kid on the van. Um, and like people in the stores and whatever, they were just coming up and they're like, Oh, it's so cool that you're doing the ice age trail. Like it, like nothing more than that, you know, just like simple, um, super nice. And then there's so many people that were tracking this that were like, well, if you need any supplies, just let us know. We'd be happy to run some out to you. We'd be happy to drop some off. And then one of the days when I was icing my ankle on the side of the road, um, we decided to do a Facebook live just to be like, well, this is a situation and this is what's going on. And like, I'll, I'm still okay. Everything's good. And someone comments like, well, you know, if you could have any food in the world right now, like what would it be? And I was like, lasagna and red velvet cupcakes are the two things that I have not been able to find on this. And like, that is absolutely what I'd want. So at the next trailhead, um, a person showed up with three dozen cupcakes. What? And so, yeah, three dozen cup. Just here you go. 
And I was like, oh, my goodness, like, I didn't think anyone was actually paying attention to this, you know. So then we get to the next trailhead and someone shows up with um, 18 homemade red velvet cupcakes and just some other Gatorade and um, supplies that, you know, they just thought we might need for this. And so then we get an offer of a family that um, they they're, they just they're very big into the Ice Age Trail and they're hiking it. But they're like, hey, you know, like we have a farm. If you'd like to come stay at our farm, we'd be happy to have you guys out here so that you can, you know, actually shower and get like a good night's sleep. And they're like, oh, by the way, I made a homemade lasagna for you. No and so, way. <laughs> yeah. And so um, there are just a lot of really cool things like that that were going on along the way. And so I guess one of the big things that I really wanted to share at a time of, you know, like, political unrest and racial unrest and the pandemic and everything is like there are still a lot of really amazing people out there and even though it may be small town america uh there are a lot of just really great people and some of these people that were following along for this fkt are not even runners or trail runners like they are just people that live in these towns and they want to support people as they're coming through to show off their community mm. man that's uh uplifting to hear that yeah that's that's great to hear that it, you know in sport athletics has a has a way of breaking down barriers and making things that seem complicated very simple too um, absolutely yeah that's super cool to hear that yeah and i mean this is also at a time when there weren't any professional sports going on you know so it's like oh everyone is just watching this fkt <laughs> and like it was it was pretty nuts <laughs> that is great and so this uh this this family that brought you in and made you lasagna, they're just, their farm was near the trail or did you have to like get in your car and travel somewhere or how did you? Um, it was about a 10 minute drive to their farm from the trail. And so like, that's perfect, you know, cause then, you know, get a good night's sleep the next morning, you can take a shower and then it's just a 10 minute drive to the trail and there you go. And so it was awesome. Real quick. I mean, that sounds like a best moment, but what were the best and worst moments of the whole thing? Oh, boy. Um, so the worst moment, the worst moment was probably um, day, maybe like, maybe day eight or nine. Um, there is like that tropical storm that was coming in from the East Coast and Wisconsin got hit with like the remnants of the tropical storm. Aisa. And so like, yes. Yeah. And so because of that, it made what should have been a decently quick moving day. Like I was still walking at this point, but like I figured that I could still walk 40 miles in about 14 hours that day. Cause it was, there's a long road section and then there's, but the trail is just like so flooded and like the storm was coming in and it was cold. It was like 45 degrees. And so because of that, it just made the day so slow and long and just, it was, I was out until almost midnight that night, just trying to get the miles in that I needed. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that was just, that was a brutal day. Um, the best moment was there is a, there's a tunnel that you have to go through. Um, and there's a family that had been tracking us. Uh, this is more towards like the Milwaukee area and they have a three and a half year old that has already hiked 155 miles of the ice age trail. Um, and so he's very big into it and his, his parents are like, 
hey, you know, like his favorite section is actually this tunnel and he'd like to run it with you if that's okay. And so sure enough, I'm like, absolutely, like, come on out. And so they brought him to this tunnel. And as we get there, it it had once again just rained. Um, So he's out there in like his hat, his like rain boots and everything. And he runs with me through this tunnel. But he's giving me his trail tips on how I should run the trail and like the best parts and stuff. And so that was just really special and really fun. Cool. How far into the run was that? This is a god like 800 miles in <laughs> you're probably probably happy to see any new faces at that point absolutely uh, how'd you get ready for this how'd you train um uh that's a great question because i would not say that i was necessarily training for this um so going back to like december of last year I was like, I'd like to run Black Canyon in February and hopefully get a golden ticket back into Western States. And that I put in like the best 10 week buildup I've ever had in my life and just um, ended up dropping out of Black Canyon. And so um, part of me is like, you know, I really don't know what I'm going to do. And so I just picked a couple smaller races to kind of use the fitness and stay motivated. And I was like, all right. Like I'm still going to race the North face Peru and um, I had a couple other things lined up and then COVID hit. So it shut down all of these races. And so I'm like, well, now I really don't know what to do, but I'm as fit as I've ever been, I think. Um, and so in April, I ran every street of Ottawa, Illinois and raised money for small businesses uh, that were shut down due to COVID um, and ended up raising $13,000 for that. Um, and with that, we took that money and bought, uh, gift cards from the small businesses in our town that were shut down and affected by COVID and donated those and then donated those gift cards to the frontline healthcare workers, hospital staff, medical staff. And then the other stuff that we didn't give to the hospital went to like businesses that we couldn't necessarily buy from, but we could still at least donate to them. So raised about $13,000 from that in early April. And then I'm like, you know, that was 205 miles over 12 days. And that was just all pavement running. And then I was like, well, like, I still want to do something, though. Like, I need to use this fitness somehow. So I sat on the couch for like a week just to let myself think a little bit. And then started running. I was like, you know what? Let's just do Ice Age. Like, I was thinking about doing it maybe five years from now or so. But I was like, you know, what? let's just let's do it. And so I decided on May 4th, I think, was the day I decided that, okay, we're going to go through with this and contacted a couple of people to see if they could pace and crew. And they said, yes. And my husband's like, well, I'm not doing anything, so I'll go. <laughs> and then, um, then got our photographer, Kevin, to commit to that. And so from there is like, all right, we're doing Ice Age and we're starting June 1st. Um, and, uh, yeah, so basically I took three trips to Wisconsin for about three days each in the weeks leading into it and basically went out and did back to back to back long runs on different sections just to kind of like learn the different types of trail that would be out there. And then, you know, took a few days off and then started on June 1st. Sick. What, what'd you learn if you could share some advice let's say there's a listener out there who has an fkt maybe it's not quite as colossal as a thousand miles but they want to they want to tackle something like that 
is there anything you learned from this experience or any advice that that looking back you could offer that person yeah uh 10 seconds at a time um and like i've said that before and i'll keep on saying that just 10 seconds at a time um you know, like when the ankle injury hit, like that honestly could have been the end of it. And, um, like, I don't think anybody would have been upset or blamed me if I would have, you know, stopped running cause my ankle is swelling and basically got to be the size of a baseball. But I'm like, I can still take 10 steps at a time. I can do anything for 10 seconds. I can always just count to 10 and then do it again. And so because of that, um, I was still just making forward progress, even if it wasn't what I wanted it to be. It was still like I was still 10 seconds farther down the road than I was, you know, 10 seconds ago. And so because of that, um, I think that's how I was able to break it down and really just like be in the moment and forget about what I had just done five minutes ago and not even think about what I have coming up in five minutes. Um, and it sounds, you know, a little bit intimidating to think that, you know, you're, you're thinking about things in 10 second increments of something that's going to take, you know, three weeks. But like, that's really how you have to do it. Because like, if you start thinking about what you've already done, it's probably a little freaky. But if you start thinking about what you still have to do, uh, it's probably even more intimidating. Hmm. 10 seconds at a time. Yep. And then the other thing is food. Figure out five foods that work for you, like no matter what, and just use those. But the thing is, you need to think of foods that even if you are so sick of eating, you will still be able to choke it down. How much were you eating? Any idea of calorie count? Yeah, so I took in 6,000 to 8,000 calories every day that I was out there. Um, and it ended up being like the perfect solution because I only lost two pounds during the FKT. Wow. Six to 8,000 calories a day. Yep. Was that hard? Um, it wasn't necessarily fun. Um, I will say that. Um, just because, like, when I was out on the trail, I was still taking in about 300 calories an hour. And so, like, even though, like, normally I'd race at about 300 to 350 calories an hour. But, like, even though I wasn't moving at the same pace, I was still putting those calories in. Just because I know that, like, some hours are going to be a little bit more, some are going to be a little bit less. Um, and so, like, it was a lot. I mean, I was doing this on quick trip cheeseburgers and crispy chicken sandwiches and rice crispy treats with peanut butter and cold spaghettios and condensed chicken and stars soup. And so because of that, like there are only so many cheeseburgers you really want to eat. There are only so many chicken sandwiches you really want to eat, but I knew that those things didn't upset my stomach and would just keep me moving. Um, same thing, cold spaghettios, like not necessarily the most tasty thing in the world, but it works. And then uncrustables, you know, the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, like those, they work. But then um, Glacier B, the three and a half year old that ran through the tunnel with me, his parents dropped off some that were chocolate and peanut butter. And that was like a game changer for me. Cause like after two and a half weeks or whatever of eating the same flavor of uncrustable, there's a new flavor there. And I'm like, what is this? <laughs> Like it just, it, I didn't even know that there are other flavors out there. And so it's like, Oh my goodness, this is amazing. <laughs> eating, eating's a thing. Eating becomes a thing. You know, when you're doing anything where you're burning a lot of calories day over day, it's such a thing. Absolutely. And like, 
You just, and you have to just keep on putting the calories in because if you don't, like, you're not going to make it. Yeah, Dunsky. What about, I mean, Corey, you're fast. I mean, outside of running, you know, I mean, I've got here on my stat sheet, you did a 226 Chicago Marathon. Is that yeah. correct? How did you how did you get so fast? What's your what's your running background? Uh, so I started out as a 200, 400, 800 meter runner. Um, so like in junior high, um, I actually went to state in the four by 200, the 400 and the 800. Um, and so like, that's kind of a weird mix of events, but it worked. And that's just kind of what I did all through junior high, high school. And then into college, I still ran 200 every once in a while, but more like 400, 800, 1500. Um, and then ran cross country, which was eight kilometers for division three. Um, and like, I was, you know, I've run 49 seconds in the 400, um, and 154 in the 800. And so like, that's just years of speed. And like, you know, I was also a soccer player and I was a swimmer. So, um, that base is always, which has always been there. Um, and then I got into triathlon for a little bit and uh, qualified for the Ironman 70.3 World Championships twice um, before I even got into marathon stuff. And so, like, when I got into the marathon, I'm like, oh, well, I'm used to racing for four and a half hours for a half Ironman, and now I only have to run for, like, two and a half hours for the marathon. Like, this is really fun. Um, and then when I ran my first ultra, uh, that was, like, maybe four and a half hours, and, like, oh, it's pretty similar to, like, a pretty similar to, like, a half Ironman, in my opinion, in terms of, like, having to take in calories while you're moving and just, you know, running a fast half marathon after swimming 1.2 miles and biking 56 miles is not necessarily any easier than, you know, running a 50 K. Um, and so because of that, um, I didn't really struggle with the transition to trails. Hmm. This you're noted for the speedo. Did that come from the triathlon years? How did, how did that come about? Yeah, so I did race uh, the, my triathlon in Speedos often just because I enjoyed that. Um, but, like, honestly, it's I was doing a 50K in Florida in, like, 20, 2016. I was doing a 50K, and I had packed a couple Speedos for the beach, like, for before and after the race, and packed, like, you know, training shorts or whatever, but not ones that I'd normally race in. Um, and then on race day, I realized like, oh, I forgot my racing shorts. So everyone's like, just run in a speedo. It's fine. Like nobody cares. And so I was like, great, you know, it is Florida. So I guess whatever. So I ended up winning that 50 K and like the, like the photo of me winning the 50 K in a speedo and a crop top went like crazy on the internet. And so because of that, like, they're like, and now you're speedo man. And that's just what I became. So, yeah. I like it. It seems like there's some merits to running in the speedo. I mean, I it works. I like it. <laughs> You're a black outdoor athlete. There are not a lot of black outdoor athletes. You're certainly in the minority there. Was it a hard transition going from typical track and field to the outdoor space? Did you face any ridicule, ridicule with any, any parts of either the black community or the white community? What was that experience like? From... Um, you know, for me, I would say that I didn't really necessarily struggle with it. Um, 
just because I've always been the type of person where it's like, if I want to do something then I'm just going to go do it. Um, and so like, um, when it comes to triathlon it is interesting because I actually wanted to be a professional triathlete and like, I just didn't have the swim for it, even though I was on the swim team, like my outdoor swimming, it like open water swimming is not my strength. I'm much better in the pool. And so because of that, you know, there's always the joke that like, oh, black people can't swim. Well, I'm like, well, I've been to worlds twice, so I think I can swim. Um, so it's like, yeah, but I just didn't have the pro level swim to get there. Whereas like my bike was well on its way and my run was actually a lot of times just as fast as the pros, if not faster. And so, um, that's where, you know, I really didn't face anything in the, in the triathlon world though, just because like I, people may have been a little standoffish or whatever, just cause you really don't see a bunch of black people in triathlon, but you know, you really can't ignore me when I get out of the water behind you, then I'm just passing you on the bike and then you don't see me on the run. And then same thing when it came to like trail racing, um, I don't think that people actually cared, um, about being black. I think people are just very curious about the speedo, um, cause it's not every day you see a speedo in trail racing. Um, and, and so like, that's just the, that's the thing that I think is funny. Cause like a lot of people just stare and I'm like, yeah, well, you're probably staring at my speedo. And I'm like, great. Cause you know. I, I pick different ones all the time and like it's always like a shock value thing like am I just gonna wear like a plain speedo or I'm or am I gonna come out with something where like you cannot ignore me like like western states in 2018 people are like what speedo is he gonna wear and I'm like you guys will find out but I promise you you've never seen this one before and it was this pink speedo that had like unicorns and like cats shooting lasers out of their eyes and like ice cream cones and donuts and like i mean yeah like sure i didn't win western states but people still remember the speedo <laughs> not everybody can pull that off Corey. <laughs> i'm just gonna tell you <laughs> yeah that's true that is true do you think the the outdoors will ever be a larger part of black culture um, I think that it's changing and I think that we are trying to change that now. And I will say that companies are definitely doing a better job of like actually incorporating, you know, people of color into their advertisements and like, um, sponsoring athletes. I think that's still a struggle, but they're getting there. And, um, I think it will start to become a larger part, or at least I hope it will. Um, but you know, at the same time, it's, still i would say it's still probably rather intimidating for quite a few people of color to actually want to go out into the sport when there's still not a lot of people of color doing these things um and so it's also been very interesting because on social media recently um after like the fkt and then eco challenge fiji and stuff like i've been getting messages like daily of people just being like oh i'm I know that you're talented, but like, what does being black have to do with it? Or I know that you're talented, but what does being gay have to do with it? Or, well, no talent. So that's why you wear the speedo and like stuff like that. And so like, if I'm getting messages like that, if, you know, as someone that has done a lot of stuff, then I just wonder like what other messages people are getting in their inboxes. Um, and that's probably why people are being scared away from the sport. Interesting. Those are coming into your inbox on a daily or yep, pretty regularly. On a daily. Yep. Yep. And so, um, and like the 
very interesting thing is like it's not from athletes it's not from other people i'm racing against it's probably not even from like runners or like adventure racers or whatever like i think it's just like people that have seen this because like there it's been uh, like i've been in the new york times and cnn and msn and um like eco challenge is, is on amazon and so like that's what i think is just very interesting and i think that people are probably a little scared away by that you know we've i live in Asheville, and we have a pretty large gay community here so i'm kind of uh I don't know. Sexual orientation doesn't seem like a big deal in the outdoors sure. really to me. Yeah. Um, but I don't see very many black athletes outside. Um, so that definitely is something that, uh, that is in my head of, as to actually why that is. Um, there's a study and I didn't put this in the show notes when I sent this over to you. Apologies for that. Um, but it's called, and there's just not a lot of real research on this topic. And, but I ran across this. This was a, a thesis um, written by a guy named Matthew C. Uh, Goodred, um, University of the Pacific. He wrote this in 2008. It's entitled Racial Complexities of Outdoor Spaces, an Analysis of African-American Lived Experiences in Outdoor Recreation. And he does a, a survey of um, several black folks who may be into the outdoors, may not be into the outdoors, um, some various things. But I want to just run over a couple things that were in this, uh, in this thesis. And I'll link to it in the show notes. Anybody who's listening wants to read it. It's, it's a long read. It's 100 pages. It's pretty well done. But it's worth checking out because there's not much really research-oriented stuff that I've been able to find um, on this topic. But some interesting things that, that came out. Um, and the first thing when he, ta when he interviewed um, the participants in this study, again, all of them were black, the first thing he brought up was, what do you think of when you think of outdoor recreation? And 91% of them did not even think of what normally is considered outdoor recreation. It would be going to the field and playing football. Or something like that. What, I mean, would would that be something that you have seen that that kind of thing, or is that maybe just this group of people who you had participating in the study? No, I mean that makes sense. Um, yeah, and yeah, I mean for me, like I would have even as so like where Ottawa is located, we have Starved Rock State Park like eight miles down the road for, from us. And so, like, as a kid, my parents would take me hiking there. Um, and so, like, for me, I would totally think, like, hiking. But I can totally see why people would say, like, playing football or playing basketball or something like that. Yeah, and the 9% who did go along with what you're saying, it was exactly that. Their parents uh, took them and exposed them to outdoor recreation at some point. So they kind of understood it was more than just playing in the park. And then it got a little bit more detailed, and it was 100% of the participants defined hiking and camping as um, white activities. Um, did you ever feel like being in trail running? I mean, were you openly just like trail running as a white activity? Was that in your... Um, I, so I really didn't even think about that, um, just because like coming from triathlon going to trail running i just had a lot of really cool trail running friends you know and so i mean i guess they were all white but um i really didn't think about that because 
I was just like, oh my goodness, this is a new activity that I'm falling in love with, you know? Um, so yeah, I don't know. I guess I kind of had my blinders on a little bit, but I don't know. I just knew I wanted to be good at it. Yeah. And it, and it spoke to you. On some yeah, lo- absolutely. On, on some level, it spoke to you. A couple more things about this study. You know, when, when they, when they dug a little deeper and they asked, you know, why do you consider that a white activity? Um, there were three main things that popped up when it came to media and marketing. And you already referenced this, uh, 100% of them said that that was the main reason that they, they saw it as a white only activity. So it's interesting. You've already, you've already been online with that. Um, 52% said upbringing and exposure. Sure. So I don't know. I find that interesting. And then 41% uh, mentioned uh, systemic oppression. Um, some interesting quotes that were in there, and this was just blew my mind seeing this, is that there were some of these families, there was a, a genuine fear of going outdoors, like something bad was going to happen to you outdoors. Have you ever experienced that? Um, so luckily I have not experienced that. Um, I think that I can also just be semi naive at times or just like, don't necessarily think too much about it. Cause like, if I want to do something, I'm just going to go do it. Um, and so, yeah, but like, I can totally see you. I, in certain races that I've been in where it's like, Oh, like maybe that wasn't necessarily the best race to choose or whatever, but like, So, like, my husband is white, and so, like, there's also a lot of, like, I feel safe going many places, though, anyway, I guess. Um, And But my parents are also white, and so uh, because of that, like, I've also just done a lot of things that, like, you know, they were were very good about trying to acknowledge, um, like, quote-unquote, black activities as I was growing up. But at the same time, it's like we were also going to do things that some people would consider very white, like camping. Huh. Interesting. So, yeah, you had so much exposure that it kind of just made it a non-issue. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. What do you think the path forward is to get a little more diversity in the outdoors? Um, you know, it, it really, I think it really does start with marketing. Um, and, like, if you want people to do things, then, you know, you should actually show people that look like them doing it. Um, because, you know, if you're going to have just ads of, you know, people that are all white camping or whatever, then that's not really that inviting for people of color to want to go camping. Um, and I think that there still needs to be things with like national parks and just like even state parks, local parks, whatever. And just, you know, in those ads for these things, like also including people of color in them and saying, Hey, you know, it is okay to come here. Like we want you here. Um, cause I mean, it really wasn't that long ago that, like, black people weren't even allowed in, you know, national parks. I mean, that was only, what, like, 70 years ago, 60 years ago? So, I mean, um, yeah. And at that point, it's like, that could be somebody's grandparents, and then their grandparents didn't take their parents camping or to the national park or whatever, so then the kid has never been. Like, it's it's not that far removed, really. Hmm. What do you think sport and competition plays into it? Um, you know, I think that sponsoring athletes of color that, um, are doing well would be a great thing. 
Um, and like, yeah, it's just, it's one of those really hard things. Cause I feel like certain companies haven't sponsored athletes of color in the past just because like it wasn't necessarily their target market. And so, um, which is not a great reason to not sponsor an athlete, but like times are changing. Mm, yeah. And you know what, if you're only marketing to your target market, you're never going to grow your audience. So you know, it's it's important to do that, but at the same time, you got to at least spend a little time reaching out to some new people. Absolutely. I mean, in my opinion. Absolutely. It'll be interesting to see how everything plays out. I would, I think it would be just the best thing for just the competitions and just, God, the outdoor culture in general to get some more diversity outside. What about your career in general? What What has been the the high point of your career what's like your crown in your head maybe it's a race maybe it's a training plan you went through maybe it's i don't know what it could be what's your what's your crowning your highest point of your career yeah um it's definitely it it's changed i guess because um like i thought that like Eco Challenge Fiji, like being the first all African American team to race an Eco Challenge or like an endurance expedition would be like amazing. But and it is and absolutely. But honestly, like the FKT, I think has to be one of it, probably the biggest thing I've done just because it's taken it took the longest and like it took the most effort. And um, like it really got noticed, though. Um, And so like I've had a lot of good races and trainings and stuff, but eco challenge and then uh the fkt how what was the eco challenge that you that you competed in yeah so eco challenge fiji is basically a 500 mile um endurance expedition that includes sailing stand-up paddleboard um billy billy rafting whitewater rafting um ascending and rappelling trekking uh mountain biking just a bunch of different disciplines and basically once you don't get your map until the like an hour before the start and basically it's like here you're at one spot and then you know camp one is you know 100 miles away or whatever and you have multiple checkpoints that you have to go through to get to check uh camp one and then camp two through camp five um and so like you're racing in teams of four and then you have one crew person that you'll be able to see at each camp um and yeah it just goes on and on and on (laughs) and you have 11 and you have 11 days to finish okay and so how did you get selected for this um so through instagram um a man named clifton uh reached out to me and he's like hey you know i'm trying to put together the first all african-american team to race an eco challenge um would you like to join the team and i was like um i don't know and he's like well it's going to be in fiji and i was like well i guess that could i guess i could be persuaded into this you know i'm like probably not too bad and so um <laughs> it was just really funny because it was also my first year running for the North Face. And so I was like, all right, like, here we go. Like, I now need to juggle, like, a racing season 
And I also need to juggle like training for an eco challenge when uh, running, cycling and like swimming are things that I can do. But like I've never been sailing before. Like I had never been on a stand up paddle board. Like I really didn't have that much experience on a ropes course and stuff. But like, okay. (laughs) And so you signed up and they shipped you off. Now the eco challenge. Now that that used to happen. Mm-hmm. There was a period of time when it was kind of on the major networks and whatnot. And so is this just something that Amazon's brought back recently or has this been going on all along? Uh, no, they just brought it back. So 2000, uh, 1999, I believe, was the last season. So maybe they filmed that in 98 and it fil- aired in 99 uh, or something like that. But then it went off the air for like 10 or 11 years. And then they filmed uh, Fiji in 2019 um as like bringing it back so they they'd like to do it more so like there's season two is hopefully being filmed next year um and yeah uh it's just interesting because they fiji was the last place they had an eco challenge before it went off the air so that's why they started again in fiji um and that's a lot of jungle (laughs) (laughs) how'd you guys do uh, you'll have to watch the show to find out. Oh, it's not out yet. No, it came out on Friday. Okay. So it is okay. now out. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, but yeah, so it was interesting because, um, I was racing with teammates that we, he, Cliff found us all through Instagram. And so because of that, other than a three day, uh, like training weekend that we did in California, all five of us had never been in the same spot until we got to Fiji. Oh man, I bet that was it. Cool being a part of a production like that. Absolutely, I loved it. Yeah, yeah. Did you have a camera with you all the time, or as much as possible? How'd they how'd they pull that off? Yeah, so we were actually one of the ten featured teams. So we had a camera with us for probably I'd say fifty percent of the race. But I was wearing a microphone twenty four seven during the race, um, and like. You know, after 10 minutes, you forget that you're wearing a microphone and that's totally fine. Um, and even having cameras around is totally fine. Like it, it's definitely a race. Like it's a race first and then they're just building the TV show around the race. Um, and so like when you see people out there doing whatever we're doing out there, like it's legit, you are doing it and it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to watch that tonight. I can't wait. Yeah. yeah especially and- now that I've got to talk to you, this is going to be, I'm more vested. oh yeah and like it's fun though it's like but when you see just some of the suffering that's going on out there like that is real like they're they don't create drama for the tv like it's there (laughs) (laughs) what about your lowest moment what what what's been the biggest struggle of your your career Hmm. the lowest moment was probably 2017 yeah, 2017, I dropped out of Gorge Waterfalls 100K. Um, I was hoping to get a golden ticket there and ended up dropping out of that race. And that's the first DNF I had ever had. Um, and like that just stuck with me for a long time. Because um, like I like even if I wasn't going to win a race or even if I wasn't going to be anywhere near the podium, like I just don't drop out of races unless there's like a medical reason for it. And I just took like a nasty fall at like mile 23 or 24 or somewhere in there. Um, and just basically like my knee was starting to swell up. My hands are all cut up and, um, came into the 50 K and my husband is on like a Facebook live thing. And so, because, and I, I was still in like, I was still 
in maybe the top 10 at that point or so. Um, but like I had to drop, like I just wasn't going to be able to finish. And so, but he's doing Facebook live as I'm coming into the aid station. So I'm just smiling and all polite and all happy about it. So then I just leave the aid station hoping he's going to like get off Facebook live so I could then come back in and drop out of the race. But instead I walked it to like mile 40 or so and then, um, dropped out there. And like, I just still never got over that. Oh man. What did you, what was the result of your injury? What happened? Uh, everything ended up being totally fine. Like my knee like took about a week for it to stop swelling and like everything was good. There wasn't anything broken, nothing torn. Uh, my hands went back to fine. Like I fall a lot, so that's nothing new. Um, but yeah, it was just one of those things where it's like, I felt like I was in shape and ready to go, uh, for that race also. And then it just didn't really work out. What's the rest of you, what's coming up for you in 2020? What do you got planned for this year? And I guess it's kind of time to start planning for next year. Um, yeah, so I am, uh, I'm running a marathon on September 6th up in like Northern Wisconsin, um, which is absolutely ridiculous because I've run like maybe a hundred miles since the FKT. So this is going to be, uh, this will be nice and fun to suffer, I guess. Um, after that, like, I don't really know. Um, I don't, I don't know if there are going to be races later this year or not. And so because of that, I'm just kind of maybe going to take some time and scout some other FKTs that could potentially happen later this year or next year. If, um, if we don't really have any races going on. Um, and so, yeah, like right now, basically the goal is just like get back into some sort of shape that isn't, you know, round. Um, and then, uh, go from there. Did you say some sort of shape that isn't round? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do for a living? Are you an athlete full time? Yeah. So I'm an athlete and then I also coach with uh Chasky endurance. Um, and so yeah, running and coaching. What's the coaching involve? What do you get a lot of enjoyment out of that? What's it all about? Absolutely. Like I think I actually enjoy coaching more than I enjoy racing at times. Um, just because it's really fun to just watch people grow in the sport and like watch their love for the sport. And, um, especially taking someone that maybe, um, is a marathoner and they either are running faster or they've gotten the bug to try an ultra. Like I absolutely love that. Um, but I also coach people that, you know, they have run a 5k and they're like, yeah, I would love to make the jump to 10k or half marathon. Um, and so like, I just really enjoy watching people grow that way. And, um, yeah, like that's just, that's really fun. Um, yeah. How do you, how do you, what's your trick for getting people to believe how amazing the human body is? Well, I, it's, it's interesting because I will, I use myself as an, as an example sometimes where I'm like, well, I was a marathoner like four years ago and now I'm running, you know, the ice age trail and people are like, Oh, that's unbelievable. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, you can also do that. You can go from a 5k to a marathon and you don't have to wait four years to do that. And just like little things like that. But I'm like, once again, like we're, we're just going to focus on this week and, you know, get your runs in for this week, get your workouts in this week. And then we'll build on that next week, you know, and you just kind of continue to do that. 
And before you know it, you'll take someone that maybe is only running 20 miles a week and now they're running 35 or 40 miles a week and they're like, I feel better now running 40 miles a week than I did at 20 miles a week. Um, and so it's just about those little steps and making people believe that they can just get through those little things one after another. The swing of emotions when you're running for 10, 12, 15 hours is crazy. Do you get that same swing of emotions number first of all do you get that and second of all what's the difference between running a marathon versus running a hundred miler as far as that emotional roller coaster uh marathons hurt uh that's the big thing like marathons just hurt like they start hurting early and they just keep on hurting whereas like a hundred miles i find is a little more enjoyable because the pace is just a little bit slower and even though you're going longer um i don't think it's as i don't know so i've always thought of like a hundred miles as a long day out in the woods with you know a hundred of my closest friends like there you go and so um like i think that a hundred miles is fun and I don't know that I've always been like actually racing my hundred mile races. Um, but now after this FKT, like I've realized like, oh, I can probably push a lot harder during my hundreds. So um, if you ask me in like a year or so, I may not say that hundreds are fun. Um, and I may say that they're definitely a lot more work, but like, I don't know that I've really ever had like super low moments during my hundred mile races. Um, just because like they're, I've been able to control it for the most part, like taking the food and the calories and, and there you go. And like anytime there has been even just like the slightest low, I'm like, Oh, I'm probably hungry. I need to eat. Mm. Um, and so, so like, that's why it's like this really, I guess I haven't been normal when it's come to these hundred mile races and stuff. And, um, and so, yeah. Interesting. What do you think about the sport of ultra running in general? Where do you see it going? Where do you see it at right? Where do you see it at right now? Where do you see it going? Um, well, right now, uh, we are uh, basically all virtual races. <laughs> so, um, so I, I mean, I don't know any other sport that's out there that like that's like let's do a virtual whatever. So, I think it's kind of cool that we still have some sort of community going on. Um, even though, you know, we can't actually all be in the same spot. Um, I think that's pretty neat. Um, but like where we are now, I think that there's like so much focus on like the UTMB, the Western States, hard rock and stuff like that. And I think that actually for the next few years, we're going to see a lot more of these smaller races that have been like kind of forgotten. I think that we're going to see like a kind of a resurgence in them because they've been around for so long and um, people are going to need things to race. Whereas unfortunately, just because of COVID, like some of these like really small race companies are probably going to go out of business, which is sad because there are so many amazing small races out there. Um, but I think that we're going to see just the shift focus a little bit from like the UTMB and the Western States. And I think it's going to grow. And when it does, I believe there's going to be better coverage of these races. So like UTMB already has, you know, the TV coverage and all the internet stuff. And I think we're going to start seeing that from like Western States and maybe even like a Leadville and something like that. Um, just because like we are going to see a boom in running, whether that's, you know, the 5k, the marathon or ultra running. Do you think they'll ever get to a place where there's significant prize money at these events for athletes? Um, or do you even see that as important? 
You know, I don't think most athletes even pick their races based upon the prize money. Because if you look at something like Run Rabbit Run, um, that has like $10,000 for first place for, you know, the first male and female in the 100-mile race. And yet still so many athletes choose to go to Hard Rock. Um, Not Hard Rock, um, UTMB instead. And so, um, like, I don't know that the prize money is necessarily a huge drawing factor. Um, So... I think that there could potentially be a time when there's some prize money for more races, but I don't know that that's still going to affect like a lot of athlete choices when it comes to uh, racing like Western States, for example, there's no prize money at Western States, but like if you finish in the top 10 at Western States, then you're probably going to pick up a contract or something. Right. No, no, I think that's the existing ecosystem. I wonder if it'll ever change to where, it's not so sponsor driven that there's just a a circuit where if you perform you can make a living you know um similar but you know there always has to be there has to be a broader ecosystem and i don't think ultra running is there yet but i often wonder if in six eight years it could be i don't know i don't know i think so like i think that it's growing enough that it could um, and I think one of the big things, though, is just like there needs to be a good way to cover these races so that it makes it interesting for the general public. Right. What do you what do you see that? How do you envision that? What would be interesting? Um, you know, honestly, like I'm a nerd where I just sit there and like if they had someone that was just following with a drone or something like I just want to watch the race. Like I, I, I would very much be interested in watching like front pack of men, front pack of women um and then just like doing like different like stories throughout the day of like racers that have been there so like that would take some work on the racers part as well where it's like yeah we need you we need you to submit like you know some sort of story some sort of story about like your life or what it took you to get to this race or why this race is important but then like show those clips during the race when there's not a ton going on um, but I mean, if you can do that, then I think it would be a great thing. No, I agree with you. I mean, you could just make that a part of getting your bib, you know, it's like, this is what you have to submit to get your bib. Totally. Hmm. I love it, man. Well, I'm kind of running out of time on this end. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to come on the hammer factor here. We just eclipsed a thousand subscribers here listening to the podcast. Woo! So that's exciting. And, awesome. Uh, I don't know. Um, a lot of topics that, that we discussed here and, and lots of new things going on. What, what's your bourbon of choice these days? Uh, Stag Jr. Stag Jr. I've never had it. Yeah, it's good. I'm more of a Basil Hayden's type. Also a great choice. Uh, yeah, yeah. Is there any uh, sponsor shout-outs uh, you'd like to mention or any other thing that uh, y- that you want to share with our listeners? Well, yeah, absolutely. The North Face, check them out. But, I mean, most people know who they are. Um, there's a company called Ultra X out of the UK that I just signed with. And they actually put on, like, five-day stage races um, in multiple uh, places around the world. So, um, And their goal is basically to make stage racing affordable. Um, and so, like, yeah, definitely check them out. And if you can, you know, sign up for some of their virtual challenges or one of their races um, at some point. Where can our listeners uh, follow you or learn more about you? Um, I'm most active on Instagram, so Corey Woltering on Instagram. Corey, thank you so much for coming on The Hammer Factor, and we'll have to have you come on soon after your next FKT. It sounds like you're thinking about something. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for the time. All right. Thank you.